Well, yeah. thanks to Tim and Olivia today. They're the ones who are managing the technical side of this. I don't see, I didn't see Richard out there, he's but- playing uh, tennis this weekend. He's not here, Wayne and Callista. They handle our registration announcements when the announcements are worthy of her. <laughs> and um, making sure we have sacred cookies. Yeah. So I wanna clear up one other tiny thing before we uh, move on. Uh, actually two things. I have been uh, negligent in bringing this up and mentioning it. You know, I said that we had at one time hoped to be able to have a communal way of experiencing the last Richard Rohr Conspire event, mm -hmm. which is this month. And um, it just turned out to be too complicated. They're gearing it toward individuals. It's not too late for you to uh, sign up, go to CAC. I'll mention them later today in this talk and you can register. And if there are like two or three or four of you in your family, you can all share the same device and have a little experience on your own. But being able to do something um, big, like a webinar that we had kind of hoped to do, we're not gonna be able to do that. Anytime you have uh, a call to community you'd like to issue in here or a call to commitment, jump in. Mm -hmm study group, whatever, got it. So, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you, you are, are welcome, welcome here. here. I thought that since we are delving into the area of mysticism, this is not your note. No, it's not, I was looking for it. <laughs> that we would do something uh, mystical. So, silence. Sacred mystery, right here. And we offer ourselves to sacred mystery to be used for whatever purpose can build human community and create compassion and joy and peace among us and that we might grow into our true selves. This is our prayers. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. These are among some of the most familiar words in Christian scripture. They are read every Christmas season at services people attend who would not otherwise be attending services. A friend of mine was asked by his dentist if, if he flossed his teeth, and he said, yes, I floss religiously <laughs> every Easter and Christmas. Oh, gosh. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> these are the words that begin the Gospel of John. Everyone's checking their teeth right now, oh. too. <laughs> Now, this is the Revised Standard Version in the New Testament. This is the version that we use here at St. Paul's. I want to read to you how Eugene Peterson renders this same passage. The Word was first, the Word present to God, God present to the Word. The Word was God in readiness for God from one day. Everything was created through Him. Nothing, not one thing, came into being without Him. What came into existence was life, and the life was the light to live by. The life light blazed out of the darkness, and the darkness couldn't put it out. So though this is a somewhat better translation, it's far from adequate in communicating what it was that the writer of this part of the Gospel of John sought to convey. 
I, uh, I think that, that um, the thing that got me fired mm. from teaching in the seminary, which is something I had dreamed of for years, but now looking back, realized it was one of the best things that happened to me not to uh, be there, was that I wanted to experience and express a religious faith and practice that was one without walls, without barriers. Um, those of you who have heard me for more than half a dozen times know that um, my initial and primary interest in teaching was not explicitly religious. What captured my attention and energy was learning as much about the insights as I was learning from psychology and how I could use those to enhance our growth in spiritual awareness. Uh, a very famous German theologian who was very popular when I was in the seminary, Rudolf Bultmann, who, by the way, has his own commentary on the Gospel of John, taught that what the message of Jesus was all about was a call to authentic existence. And he boldly wrote that if a person were presented with the message of Jesus and turned it down, let it not be because that they balked at any of the things that current Christian fundamentalists say are important, things like the belief in the literal nature of the miracles, the virgin birth, the literal nature of the resurrection, but in the call to life that Jesus issued, a call to, as Bultmann put it, authentic existence. And I wondered, what is this thing, authentic existence? Now, this was in the time in my life in the late 50s, early 60s, when I had been captured by um, Harry Emerson Fosdick's preaching and writing. Fosdick was a great uh, sermonizer. The New York Times used to send a reporter to Riverside Church on Sunday to cover Fosdick's sermons and then report on them the next day. We don't have that kind of thing going on today. I read Fosdick's book uh, when I was a senior in the university on being a real person, and it really captured me. And I had also been reading Paul Tillich's wonderful writing on the courage to be. So the works of these three men, Rudolf Bultmann, Paul Tillich, Harry Emerson Fosdick, shaped both my life and my teachings for, for decades. Now, as a teacher, I've always known that teaching takes place in a communal context. You don't teach by yourself. So the teaching I've done has always taken place in a Christian institutional setting of one sort or another, either some church or some seminary. I taught at a Roman Catholic seminary I had a Jew, uh, a, I say Jewish rabbi, but all rabbis are Jewish. But you know. <laughs> I had a rabbi in my class, and so it made for a great joke, you know. Southern Baptist, a bunch of priests, and a rabbi walk into a classroom. So. so today, if you were, well, you wouldn't go to a Jewish synagogue today. It would be yesterday. But if you were to go to a synagogue, a mosque, a Buddhist uh, Sangha, if you were to go to a gathering of Sikhs, which are Hindus, uh, to any of their temples, you would be involved in a ritual where somebody would take some of their sacred writings, they would read from them, and then they would offer some interpretation and application of that writing. So we are undertaking a reading from and then interpretation and application to our lives of what I think is the most misunderstood, misused of all the writings in the Christian collection, and that's the Gospel of John. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> um, oops. Can you see There that? we go. So this, these three lines, in the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God. God was the Word. As Bill said, one of the most stated or overstated verses in the Bible. And as I'll illustrate later, the Word is a misstatement. Words are kind of like tricksters. can mean a lot of different things. Sayings in one culture don't apply to another. Words in one language can't be translated into another. And our understanding of words change over time. Words evolve. They can empower, and they can also do harm. 
Words can create openings, and they can also close doors. They say that the primary thing that sets humans apart from other creatures is our ability to express ourselves with symbolic language. We can make poetry, art, music, speech. More precisely, it may even be our ability to record language, to preserve it, to write it down or make a drawing and pass down a sort of collective memory bank. No other species that we know of can pass down a collection of symbolic language. Often we take these recordings to be the whole truth because that's what we get, that's what we inherit, our words. Words are pictures about what was. And let's not forget that words are just one way to interpret reality, that they will always contain some level of subjectivity, even our histories. I've been reading or listening to uh, this book. Clint Smith wrote, he's a New Orleans native. My husband's from New Orleans. He turned me on to this book. So Clint is a poet and staff writer for The Atlantic. He wrote this book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. The title of this book is so suggestive to me because it insinuates that storytelling is also an aspect of our history, of what we learn about history. He makes this distinction in the book between history and nostalgia. He says, somewhere in between is memory. History is the story of the past using all the available facts. And nostalgia is a fantasy about the past using no facts. And memory is kind of this blend of history and emotion. History is about what we need to know. And nostalgia is about what we want to hear. This is so brilliant to me. I think we've done this with the teachings of Jesus, turned them into some kind of wistful sayings that we neither live by nor think very deeply about. We just say them. So we've turned Jesus in some way into this benevolent savior rather than a radical teacher. We have largely fit the teachings of Jesus around our beliefs instead of allowed them to transform us into a new way of being. The church taught us that Jesus was perfect among men, that he was sinless and divine. Warning, hearsay, I don't believe this. But the word has been passed down this way. In fact, it is precisely Jesus' humanity to me and all that a human life can be that makes him so extraordinary. The word became flesh, not just in Jesus, but in all things. We are the flesh in many ways that keeps these teachings alive. How we pass them down, how we pass down the word is vitally important. And we've got some revising to do, some revisiting to these words. What gets recorded is never exactly what has been said. So the hearer always hears through his or her own lens. And then we write it down and then it gets translated. And somewhere in that mix, we've probably lost something. What is recorded is also not all there is. There are so many stories that are lost to us. Clint Smith does an excellent job of pulling forth some of the stories that have been lost about our history. Some deliberately are left out. Others are passed down from mouth to mouth and never written down. In some ways, we can say that each of the gospel writers recorded what they heard, and each of them placed different levels of importance on the different teachings of Jesus. In How the Word is Passed, Smith urges the reader not to over-mythologize the ancestors who have passed down the word, but to see them as ordinary, flawed people. I think we have to hold the gospel writers to this same standard. They were ordinary, flawed people. We need to understand their words in the context in which they were written and ask ourselves how we can evolve them in today's world. I think growing our ability to hold this complexity that words can be many things, deepens our relationship to reality. And I said last week that deepening our relationship to reality is becoming mystical. History is so often recounted through the lens of what we want to believe about it. Take these two statements, which I'll show in a second, penned by the same person, I'll bet you'll figure it out, who is near profit status in the American imagination. In a private letter, he wrote, I advance it, therefore, as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to whites in the endowment both of body and mind. 
It is not against experience to suppose that different species of the same genus or varieties of the same species may possess different qualifications. In a public document, which is beloved by most Americans, very different. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Any guesses who this was now? Thomas Jefferson. That's right. He's like a prophet to us. These words were taken too literally once upon a time. In the latter statement, he actually meant that it's men who are created equal. Not, and at that, white men, because other men weren't seen as fully human. Okay? <laughs> we took that literally. We took that too literally. And, the, and we should examine that first statement and probably reject it altogether without denying the impact that it's had on American history and on our psyche. We should not freeze these words, in other words, but try to expand them and see how they need to evolve in today's world. We've idealized Jefferson and our other founding fathers instead of thoughtfully examining the words that they spoke in the context of their lives, in the context of the time it was written. We've done the same to Jesus. And while I'm not trying to equate Jesus and Jefferson, I'm trying to say that we've done Jesus a disservice by freezing his words to bless you. As a church body, we've become so wedded to doctrine about Jesus instead of taking responsibility for how we live out the teachings of Jesus in today's context. I think of histories and words like living, breathing things. Think of them like a technology that we use. It's a technology we use to express ourselves, just like art, just like a slideshow, just like speech. And that this technology gets updated with each generation and each new discovery. Google meant something very different before 1994 when, or 1998. When was Google invented? Someone help me out. But we knew, before it was a number with 100 zeros. Now it's where we find all of our information. Okay? So how we view, let's say, our founding fathers should change and expand. Not so that we are trying to change history. We can't do that. But so that we can evolve from it and grow from it. I use this as an illustration and a, an invitation to really examine how we think about words prescribed to Jesus, to allow them to grow and expand in us. If we allow them to remain fixed and rigid, I think we're saying two things. The first thing we're saying is what we understand about the sacred is fixed and rigid. And the second thing we're saying is what we understand about ourselves is fixed and rigid. So in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. God was the word. These first lines are not a stopping place. They're an opening. They're an invitation to see that words are infinitely creative. They contain whole universes. They help us understand where we have been, and they help us imagine where we can go. Each of us will be memorialized by what people say about us, the words that people say about us. I hope we can learn to live in such a way that doesn't fit into one sentence and allow ourselves to do the same for the sacred. So we would like for you to look at the last Sunday today and next Sunday as our prologue to John. John has a long <laughs> prologue, and yeah. so we, we're going to do a prologue too. Um, because it's critical to understanding what John was about. Mark, Luke, and Matthew were written to help those who had never met the historic Jesus to know something about his story, his memory, what he taught, what he did. That's why those Gospels were written. Mark's the shortest, and then Matthew and Luke are longer, and uh, we will get into, uh, probably in the next week, why that's so. They were written to fit into the liturgical... Um, rituals of the Jewish synagogue. After the crucifixion, Jesus' followers returned to the synagogue and they tried to make sense out of their experience with Jesus. 
by looking at their tradition, their Hebrew, their, what we would call the, the Hebrew scriptures, to see where and how they could see any indication that Jesus was the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams. And so they created stories about him. In doing that, they were just following his example. Jesus told parables, and his disciples told parables about Jesus. It's a very liberating truth when I first heard it for me. This, this is why uh, many of the words put in the mouth of Jesus can be found in the Psalms and in the Prophets. For example, all of the things that Jesus is said to have uttered from the cross come from either Isaiah or from the Psalms. Um, now, Mark, Luke, and Matthew were written for that purpose. Got it? In the 50s, 60s, around there. Long time, still 20, 30 years after the crucifixion. Then, 40 years later, in the year 90, we have this other gospel that comes about. It's written differently, different language, different content, different emphasis. What happened? What, what was this about? Well, as time passed, one or more straw, small, struggling Jesus communities experienced something come alive in their midst. And they are set aflame with a deep joy and peace because they are now experiencing who they are and what they're called to do in light of their understanding of the Jesus experience for them. And when they share this with the broader community of their Jewish friends, instead of being met with open acceptance, they are hit with a solid wall of rejection. They are eventually, that rejection is going to stiffen into hatred and persecution. So we have the first or second church split. I, they must have been Baptist. <laughs> I think there are 38 different kinds of Baptist in America today. Right, we started with one, but we know how to split. So they found themselves, these people, in a community that, that found themselves grounded in Jesus. And this is what you find in the Gospel of John. Now, this sort of struggle should be familiar with most of us who embrace an inclusive vision of what the church could be. I am thinking specifically of the divisions, and we got one coming in the Methodist church, mm -hmm over the matter of full inclusivity, who should be included at all levels of the church's life. I cannot imagine Jesus wasting his time having a discussion about that. We want to opt for a more inclusive stance, and that's what the community, the Johannan community wanted to do. And I think it's important as we undertake this dive into John to try to see the social crucible of both love and hostility that helped shape this gospel. Now, we know from early on, from reading in Paul's writings, which predate the gospels, that there was a struggle among the early Jesus followers about whether non-Jews could be included in their community, right? We know that there was that struggle. Um, and the inclusive side won. The Gentiles would be included. You didn't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Now, the struggle was about embracing a Jesus who not only loved the world enough to die for it, but who also sent his followers out on a mission like his own. So Mark, Luke, and Matthew, written several decades before John, and by the time John was written, you had a new Judaism that had come on the scene. The temple had been destroyed. So the Jews found their identity in following the law. All right? 
and they had a group of professional religious people who enforced the law. Those were called the Pharisees. And the Johannine community said, mm -mm, it ain't the law that's supreme, it's Jesus. And they, they had a struggle that grew up around, around that. And so when you see in John a reference to the Jews, it's really a reference to the Judeans who identified the political, economic, and religious system of Jerusalem with the law. And um, so the, the John proclaims and John's followers proclaim Jesus is a son of God, which is a title that any good Jewish person could embrace. But the Judeans in the trying to keep the law, they said, no, you guys are traitors, you're, you're uh, heretics. The proper authority is the Torah. And uh, the community that produced John said, God's spirit was the true authority, and we see God's spirit in Jesus. So little by little, they were forced to see that a commitment to Jesus meant a complete break with the Judean system, okay? So when you read John and there's criticism about the Jews, it's not the Jews, John was a Jew, Jesus was a Jew. The followers were Jewish. It's the Judeans, the law keepers, that they have a fight with. So there's this break that occurs, another break in the, in the early followers of Jesus, about the year 90. So what he's really challenging is a complete break with the social hierarchy and this erasure of a single entry point to experience the sacred. It's, it, he, again, he's trying to blow it all open. The temptation we have to avoid, or in our case, remedy, is to create a different hierarchy in which we place humans at the top, or one type of human at the top, because of our so-called higher levels of consciousness and facility with symbolic language, which we've mistakenly said makes us the ultimate translators of the divine. We are human translators of the divine, just as elephants are elephant translators of the divine. We have the ability to make speech, but we have to make space for the possibility that there are other ways to translate the divine. Our particular kind of speech with symbolic recorded language and images is, as I said, just a technology. Whales, these are fascinating creatures to me. I have never been whale watching and I want to go. Whales have the technology of echolocation and communication through low frequency and it's other, other species through high frequencies. That, and that's how you know the difference between the species of whales that can be heard over long distances. It's how they call each other to one another and how they call the right baleen whales to baleen whales, sperm whales to sperm whales, etc. They know their sounds. Marine biologists say that whale communication increased during the quieter months of the pandemic. So they heard more ocean sounds, more communication between these whales. They were not hushed by the motors and the engines and the ocean traffic caused by humans. Their voices, to me, are like a praise song. Growing evidence also reveals that plants feel pain. There's a book called The Secret Life of Trees, I think, mm -hmm. um, and that they respond accordingly to pain by adapting their shape, adapting um, to their leaves function like eyes. So leaves kind of see light and dark, and certain vines can actually change the shape of their leaf. The same vine can have many, many, many different leaf shapes depending on the host plant that it's growing around. This is a kind of intelligence. This is a kind of way of translating the divine to me. We can't even photosynthesize, <laughs> but we are kept alive by it. When we really tune in, we discover that we are actually in constant communication with all of these other beings. We are not here and everything else over here. We are part of this natural world. So we track hurricanes. And today, yes, sure, we use instruments and technology and gadgets to do this, but those gadgets are based on a latent ability to feel shifts in the wind, to feel drops in pressure, to feel changes in temperature, and to observe the behavior of animals as the weather shifted. All of these things speak in their own language. David Abram says, we exist in conviviality with so much that is not human 
In fact, uh, there's an article in Nautilus this month, which is an online uh, publication that I love. There's an article about how so much in us is actually not human. David Abrams says, along with the other animals, the stones, the trees, and the clouds, we ourselves are characters within a huge story that is visibly unfolding all around us, participants within the vast imagination or dreaming of the world. So be careful what we make of the word, word. <laughs> In the beginning was the word. The word is just one way of expressing the ineffable awesomeness of being alive. But in the beginning, the word, word, are we following, <laughs> wasn't even what was used. It was logos. It may begin to feel like all of language is up for debate. And in a way, it kind of is. Because as I said, language changes as culture changes. And one of my favorite books, uh, written by Jan Jonathan Safran for, for the cranky old grandfather says, there are no bad words, only bad usage. I couldn't agree more. I won't, I won't say it. <laughs> Phil's always worried I'm going to swear in here. <laughs> it's important that we get this, though. Words are an offering that we have, one way of expressing our humanness and our relationships to other beings. Perhaps this is one interpretation of the word became flesh. The word is like a spark, an initiation of the human relationship to creation, the tool we use to tell and document our stories about one another and about God. With stories, we are no longer passive beings in this beautiful unfolding. We become co-creators. The stories sort of create the evolution. We are never finished telling stories. Beginnings are always revised. If any of you in here are a writer, you know how words constantly change, how what you say constantly gets edited. So not only does reference to the word or logos place John squarely in the Jewish storytelling tradition that harkens back to Genesis in the beginning, but it also gives voice to the human potential for a heightened sense of selfhood. With our words, we can express and attain a heightened sense of self. Placing the word in the being of God, placing the word in the beings of humans, with from, which our, from our mouths these words pour forth, John challenges that boundary between the human and the divine. God is the word, and the word became flesh. Most important and probably most radical during the time of our narrators it is as if John says, you, dear reader, are in God, and God is also in you. It reminds me of our beloved mystic, Meister Eckhart, who said, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. I love that. Yeah. So... Um, if you read John Shelby Spong's book on uh, Tales of a Jewish Mystic, which I strongly encourage you to do, um, you will see his reasons for not picking up a study of John until very late in his life. This book is the 22nd book that Spong wrote. And um, I think it's fair to say that one of the things that propelled him into writing this book is the same thing that happened to me when I first met Ilya Delio. Mm. Um, that is to say that the insights of evolutionary cosmology left us with a God who's no longer out there, theistic deity, who occasionally takes a stick and stirs up stuff on the earth. Evolutionary cosmology has rid, ridden us of, of, of that God so um, if you want to have a mystical experience this week, I invite you to sit with this, which I'm about to show you, as part of your daily spiritual practice. You are the sum total of a 14 billion year chain of unbroken cosmic evolution now thinking about itself. 
Now, of course, biblical scholars have known for decades that Jesus was a Jewish mystic, never a Christian, never intended to start a church. Spong got it that Jesus was a unique Jewish mystic writing about a Jewish mystic Christian. And as we get further into this, I'll be talking about uh, Bruce Chilton's book, Rabbi Jesus. He has helped me understand Jesus' mystical orientation as no other single writer has. And when we get to the water and the wine story, one of the first in the book of Signs in John, um, we'll talk more about Bruce Chilton and about what recent archaeological and biblical research, which we didn't have available to us 50 years ago, now reveals to us about, about this. So Chilton is using these findings to create an account of Jesus' missing years that establishes, at least for me, how Jesus was trained and practiced in mystical rituals that transformed his consciousness. One definition of mysticism is that it is simply a new level of consciousness. Now you have to keep in mind that that mysticism was obtained and experienced in the first century in a different culture with a different worldview than ours. Our experience won't match. We're now talking about things that are analogous, not identical. Now, <clears throat> I hope you know that we cannot know God. And by that, I mean that we cannot know God with our intellects. If we could, it wouldn't be much of a God. God is an ineffable mystery. Now, my hunch is that most people have an image of God as some human-like being. I think maybe some people conceive of God as pure energy or something in between. But when we turn to this God in prayer, and I do pray, sometimes asking for help in disaster or giving thanks when overwhelmed with gratitude, we think of this God in loving, personal, caring ways. I went through a phase where I was really enamored with Paul Tillich's description of God as ground of being. Uh, Tillich said this God was personal but not person. And I never could figure out how that worked. The reality of God as person and as that which transcends that which goes beyond the personal is beyond our ability to comprehend. Yet this is what John is attempting to do in this prologue. Indeed, he'll be doing it through the entire book. Unfortunately, many people see the Bible and especially the book of God, uh, John, as a book of certainty. The, the fears and superstitions people have put upon the Bible can make genuine biblical knowledge hard to come by. But just keep in mind, the creeds of the church, I'm talking now about the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, they would have been absolutely foreign and incomprehensible to those who composed the Gospel of John, or for whom it was written. <clears throat> Spong says, the Gospel of John is not a book about, quote, religion, sin, and salvation, but about life expanded and expanded consciousness. I believe that this book leads us in an entirely different direction from the one traditional Christianity has followed from Nicaea to this day. Hmm. Different direction. More about that next week. Hang tight. <laughs> so I'm going to expand a little bit on the problem with translating it as the word. I mentioned earlier that it's a limiting translation. In some ways this is true, but it's also only true if we limit our words or our interpretation. We have no satisfactory equivalent for logos in English. It means so much more than word and would take a sizable footnote to explain. So here's my sizable footnote. <laughs> it has a philosophical origin. Heraclitus, who was also known as the weeping philosopher, believed that the, word, or the world operates in accordance with reason and is ultimately made of fire, which is ever-changing and ever-creating. He also believed in the union of opposites, as in 
the nature or harmonizing the elements in nature. Jung, later, would adopt this in the world of psychology. Heraclitus insisted on an ever-present change known in philosophy as flux or becoming. This ancient meaning of logos is, as much, is much closer to what John meant than the word. But it's hard to put that into words. As Western philosophy evolved, logos became less about becoming and more about reason, the reason that sort of created this unfolding uh, earth and universe. It became an archetypal realm of changeless patterns rather than constantly changing patterns. Plato saw spiritual reality as the ultimate logos, whereas Aristotle pointed to observable reality, what we can see is what makes sense. So he pointed to the physical world as evidence of divine reason. What we see before us is evidence of reason, of God's reason. And that spark of logos or divine mind is in every human, and that is what is eternal and changeless in us. So it's ultimately the little spark of divine in us which perpetuates or allows us to seek this changeless and steady God. Aristotle was the one who said that God is the unmoved mover, changeless, steady. The Stoics then spoke of logos spermatikos, the generative principle of the universe. Don't worry about note taking. It's such a, let me throw all philosophy at you in two minutes. Um, but, but here we are, we've, we've now made logos static. At first logos was becoming a changing, present fire. Now it's static, it's the unmoved mover. Philo, the Jewish philosopher, opined that our fallen nature ultimately is what seeks divine logos or re the rationality to perfect itself. We've gotten further and further away from Heraclitus's idea of logos as becoming, which is another way of saying evolving. But I wonder if it isn't actually much closer to what the writers of John meant. They were in the business of radically evolving God radically evolving what we thought about God and the sacred and tradition. Sanford rejects that Logos meant the incarnate Jesus, which is how many interpreters of John, John Sanford is the one who wrote Mystical Christianity, is one of the books that we're relating to during this teaching. Sanford says that Logos refers to the innermost nature of the sacred, which is both being and becoming, a union of opposing forces, stagnant and ever-evolving. This is what Jung thought too, that is within us, that to become whole, we must channel our logos and our eros, our masculine and feminine, the alchemical soul and luna, sun and moon. You get where I'm going. These opposites exist in us and they are what animate the soul. Logos is ultimately about expression of the self expression of those opposites rather than a point of origin or a destination. Word was our best shot. <laughs> so I think it's for some of the reasons I mentioned, words are endlessly creative. Logos is constantly becoming. But logos is also felt in the absence of words, in just being, which is literally impossible to put into words. <laughs> but I'll try. I'll close with this from Meister Eckhart, who does it better than most. If you wish to understand God, think about this. Whatever you think you know is not God, for God is beyond knowing. So try understanding God beyond speech and without words. How to do this? Sink down into your you-ness and so flow into God's godness that your you-ness and God's godness become one mind. Okay, so um, I, I was way behind on slides. You did. Huh? There you we did. go. There's my. All right, that's I all. I just right. got so wrapped up. <laughs> okay, I, I said that we cannot know God intellectually, but we can know God mystically. How does that happen? This is a very important question to be able to answer because this is what the Gospel of John is all about. So I have come up with um, a way to explain what I think, how, how I think this happens. Um, 
more than once I have heard Jim Finley, um, a man Holly and I both quote a lot, and men whom I love a lot, tell how he ended up having Thomas Merton as his spiritual director. Now, it won't be a path that anybody in this room will likely choose to follow, but I do want you to know it's an option. Um, I have, seriously, I have often thought to and about myself, I don't have what the mystics have because I'm not willing to do what the mystics did to get it. Just being honest. By the way, if you want to um, enhance your spiritual practice, and this is something you can do driving in your car, so that ought to appeal to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right? Go to the CAC's website, go to their store menu, and buy this set of CDs. Following the mystics through the narrow gate, seeing God in all things. It will set you back 60 bucks. You know, cars don't have CD players anymore. Huh? Cars don't have CD players anymore. Just saying. You once gave me a set of tapes. I'm like, I don't have anything to play this on. I ran across a set of tapes that Jim Bankston gave me years ago uh -huh. when he attended a set of lectures with Marcus Borg in Washington State. I still got them. I don't have anything to play them on. But. <laughs> Well, maybe you can get this through Audible. What yeah, do you I do? I don't know. CAC's yeah. got to catch up, man. They've got to yeah, make but sure. But really, I, I'm serious. <laughs> you, you, you need to. Can you tell him, Brian? <laughs> I, I actually got to attend the conference where these were recorded. You can buy the MP3s, too. Huh? Are they available as MP3s? Okay. Thank I have not seen a lot of MP3s on their website, but maybe, maybe Thank some you. are. Yeah. So the, it, it, I didn't hear Finley tell his how he got to Merton on these. That was in, a, in another setting. So uh, Jim Finley grew up in a crazy-making family. His father was a violent alcoholic, and Finley was almost the daily recipient of his abuse. Finley's mother was a devout Irish Roman Catholic, neither able to protect Finley or um, to leave the abuser. But she did send Finley to an all-boys Catholic school, and one of the instructors there one day a religion, in a religion class mentioned a monastery. And Finley had never heard of a monastery. He's 14. He didn't know what a monastery was. And he said he was already using prayer to help him survive the abuse that was happening to him at home. So he got very taken with the idea of a monastery as a place where you could go, could go to seek God and, and to grow spiritually. So the instructor in this religion class talked about Thomas Merton. Finley had never heard of him either. So he went to the school library and found a book by Merton. In the book he picked up, which is a journal Merton had written in the monastery, he read this on the first page. As for me, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude, to be lost in the secret of God's face. Now, again, at the time, Finley's 14. <laughs> I don't know where you were when you were 14. <laughs> but he said reading that did something to him. He bought his own copy of that book, and he read it over and over. And he said, therefore, in the four years of high school, while the violence was still going on, I started writing to the monastery. When I graduated from high school, I entered, I went there, and then Thomas Merton was novice master. That's how he got to be my spiritual director. By then, I was 18 years old. So he said that he began to explore working with Thomas Merton, how he could come to terms with his own violent past, his own abuse. And again, I'm going to quote Finley. Merton's very reality was to me the presence of God as a transformed person. I saw in him this ancient lineage of the mystics, and he was that. I set his feet in the classical sense. I'd knock on his door and he'd always be writing a book and he would sit and listen and talk. And it leveled the playing field for me, really, just absolutely in terms of compassion. And then, opened up by that compassion, I told him about my desire for God. Then he told me, he said, once in a while you find somebody to talk to about this, but they're hard to find. They're really hard to find. 
I hope you found it here. And he said the purpose of this place, the monastery, is a place meant to protect, to preserve, and to cultivate this radical desire as a gift in the world. So in a much more powerful way, the writer of John is saying that in the reality of Jesus, he and that community of early believers experienced God. And it is this experience of God that John wants to make available. Sometimes, you know, this Jesus fellow says some rather harsh and upsetting things. Um, especially to those who think they've got it right. To those who think they've got the power. There's a, big, there's a character at the beginning of, of John, uh, the Jesus story, called John the Baptizer. He's got some tough language. We'll get into him when we get to, to, get to John. So Finley says that one day he went to Merton for spiritual direction and he had a copy with him of Teresa of Avila's book, The Interior Castle. Finley is now an authority on this, all right? This book is written in 1555. And in The Interior Castle, Teresa describes seven different castles that you move through going toward enlightenment or to be being fully known, a progressive spiritual development. So Finley held the book out to Merton, 18, and said to Merton, Father Lewis, that's the name Merton was called in the monastery, I think I'm in Castle 5. <laughs> but I may be in only Castle 4. Which immediately places him in Castle 3. <laughs> you can be frank with me, I can take it. <laughs> and Merton said to him, Jim, it's none of your damn business. Go feed the pigs. And so for the next many, many weeks, they talked about the pigs. Who they were, what their names were, how they were doing, their quirky personalities, and so forth. That was his spiritual practice. <laughs> do you have to do that too, Jim? Get it? <laughs> 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 in Thomas Merton, Jim Finley came to experience and to know God in a new and different way. So when John says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, he means it in the same way. In the life of Jesus, people saw the will of God being lived out, and they saw the, 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 the word of God being expressed in the life of Jesus. The call to be born again is not a call that would make them into a superior group. Rather, it was an invitation to escape life's limits and to enter into a new level of consciousness where they would begin to see themselves as part of who God is and experience God as part of who they were. That's the goal of our teaching about John that you and I begin to see ourselves as part of who God is and to experience God as part of who we are. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you.